Hi. If you enjoy Law to Fact, I want to tell you about another podcast I host. It's called Legal Tensor, and with the same blend of fun and substance as Law to Fact, guests join me to discuss timely legal issues. It's a great way to gain insights and to help you start a conversation on legal stuff that matters. It's available on all the usual podcast platforms. And while you're at it, if you could subscribe or like either of our podcasts, it would be super helpful. And now here's an episode of Law to Fact. Hello, this is Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Michelle Simon about in-personum jurisdiction. In this episode, I speak with Professor Michelle Simon, Dean Emeritus and Professor of Law at the Elizabeth Haupt School of Law about in personam jurisdiction. She nicely lays out all the tests and explains that students shouldn't be frightened of learning in personam jurisdiction once you know how to analyze. Most important thing to doing well on a question on in personam jurisdiction? Lots of practice questions. Before we get started, a few reminders. If you like us, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have a particular question you like asked, or a professor with whom you'd like us to speak, tweet us at Law to Fact. Here's my discussion with Professor Simon. Full disclosure, at the end, we get a little giddy. I think it's because of our 30-year friendship. What is in personam jurisdiction? All right, so in personam jurisdiction is the court's power over a defendant in a lawsuit. So a court needs to be able to enforce any kind of judgment that is eventually received by the plaintiff over a defendant. If the court doesn't have personal jurisdiction over that defendant, then the court can't do that. So that's the purpose of personal jurisdiction. Um, So you might think of a situation where um, the uh, plaintiff is suing the defendant in Hawaii The defendant lives in New York. The defendant has never been to Hawaii. And is it fair to require a defendant to have to travel to Hawaii in order to defend himself there? So if you think about what's behind personal jurisdiction as the kind of push-pull between the states, the relationship between the states, that states in, in, in one Uh, one way want to protect their citizens, so they want to make sure that if any wrongs are done to their citizens, that those wrongs are going to be addressed by Mm -hmm. the state court. And on the other hand, another state far away wants to protect its citizen from having to travel far in order to defend himself in another state. Okay. And so that's why sometimes personal jurisdiction is also called territorial jurisdiction, because we're looking at the relationship between the various territories, okay. so the intrastate relationships. Okay, that makes sense. So what are some problems um, that students would encounter when it comes to impersonal jurisdiction? Well, the, I think the reason that students find personal jurisdiction so difficult is because the cases are very difficult. Mm-hmm. They're mostly Supreme Court cases. Uh, um, a lot of them are, don't have our pluralities. They're... Uh, they can be inconsistent. It's hard to figure out how to synthesize those cases. But uh, the actual analytical approach to figuring out personal jurisdiction is really not as difficult as it seems. 
So, um, so make it easy for us. So there are many different ways that a state can get personal jurisdiction over a defendant. So the first thing everyone has to realize is that every state has a statute, and it's that statute that gives the parameters of personal jurisdiction in that state. And so anytime you're trying to analyze a personal jurisdiction question, the first thing that you have to determine is to make sure that the factual scenario fits within the statute. Can I ask you a question? Just so, do the impersonum jurisdiction? This is just kind of a quick question that occurs to me. Do the statutes for impersonum jurisdiction vary from states to states? Yes, so the statutes vary from state to state. Okay. Most of them have similarities to them. So mm-hmm. usually, the statute will contain uh, one section that speaks to what we call general jurisdiction, mm-hmm. and one section that will speak to specific jurisdiction, what we call specific jurisdiction. But um, as a as a the wording in those statutes will vary from state to state to state. And what is general jurisdiction, and what is specific jurisdiction? So general jurisdiction are, is the kind of jurisdiction that we've had um, through history, really from the time of the lawsuit, the case Panoya versus Neff, which most people read that. as their first <laughs> I case. Read that. Yes, we all remember it. That was the first case right. I read in law school and I was ready to drop out after I read it. I think I read it five times and didn't understand it even after that. Um, and so basically, uh, the, the ways that you can get jurisdiction that way are either through consent. So if a party consents to personal jurisdiction by either sometimes just by answering the complaint or by showing up in court and not making a special appearance in order to argue there's no personal jurisdiction. Um, So that's one way that you can have um, jurisdiction. You can also um, have uh, general jurisdiction if you are a resident of that particular state, then there's jurisdiction over you. Um, You can have general jurisdiction if you are present in the state and served at the same time. Um, And you can have uh, personal jurisdiction if you own property in a particular state. So those are all the traditional ways that come from Panoia versus Neff. The other way you can have general jurisdiction is if you have, you can demonstrate that you have systematic and continuous activity in that particular state. So if a defendant has that kind of systematic and continuous activity, they can also, the the state can have personal jurisdiction under general jurisdiction. Okay, great. And what specific jurisdiction? So specific jurisdiction is something that developed really through um, through the industrial age when we started to have a lot of situations where Um, things were being manufactured and we had component parts that were pieces of machinery that were causing problems. And so what specific jurisdiction is, is if, if you don't have that kind of systematic activity in the state, but you have a very isolated contact in the state, but at the same time, the cause of action arises out of that contact, 
There are statutes now that allow personal jurisdiction in that kind of situation. Sometimes that's called the long-arm jurisdiction because Mm -hmm. the long arm of the state is reaching out to pluck out defendant and say you have to come defend yourself in our particular state. So an example of that would be I, I live in New York. I've always lived in New York. I'm uh, driving to Massachusetts to go on vacation. As I'm driving through the state of Connecticut, I get into a car accident and I hit someone. Um, And that person then brings a cause of action against me for my negligent driving. So I've only had isolated contact with that state. Maybe that's the only time I've ever even driven through that state. But the cause of action, that negligence cause of action, arises out of my contact in the state. And as a result of that, those are the kinds of situations that fall within what we call specific jurisdiction. It doesn't have to be a negligence cause of action. It could be a breach of contracts cause of action. But what's important is that the cause of action, you identify what that cause of action is, and that cause of action arises out of whatever that isolated contact is in the particular state. Okay, that makes sense. And and so the, the statute's going to lay out the foundations for both general and specific yes. um, jurisdiction. What else generally should students know about um, impersonal jurisdiction? Well, I mean, the most important part is that that statutory interpretation piece is really only the first part of any analysis that you're doing. Okay. The second part of the analysis is the part that I think students find so overwhelming having to do with personal jurisdiction, which is the constitutional analysis. Um, Sometimes people refer to it as the international shoe analysis or the minimum contacts test. So once you've made the determination that the set of facts, whatever they may be, fall within the language of the state statute, the next thing that you have to determine is whether that is constitutional. Does it in some way violate the defendant's due process rights to have to uh, go to a particular state and defend himself there? So in other words... Even though it's, it's, it's okay under the statute, do the facts as applied to the statute violate the United States Constitution? Because as everybody knows, the United States Constitution is the umbrella over our rights. And just because a state statute says something or allows something doesn't necessarily make that true. Okay. So the test that has been developed by the Supreme Court in International Shoe and all of the cases that you studied following International Shoe really is about what do we look at in order to uh, figure out that constitutional test. Mm -hmm. So the basic International Shoe test is uh, looking to see whether there are minimum contacts between the defendant and the forum state that are of such a quality and quantity that it does not offend notions of fairness. So it does not violate due process in any kind of way. So you're looking to see what are those contacts Mm -hmm. between the defendant and the state, the forum state, meaning the state where the lawsuit is going to be pending. What would be some examples of where a court found minimum contacts? Well, so minimum contacts is much more complicated than that, and that's really what all the Supreme Court cases have done. So 
basically what the Supreme Court has said is that when you're trying to figure out whether minimum contacts are satisfied, you really look at two different things. The first thing um, frequently we call the, the sovereignty factors. And the sovereignty factors are you look to see whether the defendant has purposeful availment with the forum state. In other words, has the defendant in some way purposefully availed himself of the, uh, the kinds of things that the state um, provides? So, uh, for example, has the defendant advertised in that forum state? Uh, does the defendant have a helpline in that forum state? Does the defendant have employees in that state? Um, does the defendant uh, have um, some kind of internet capability that uh, would um, reach particular groups of people in that particular state? Did the defendant put their whatever their marketing, whatever their component part is, for example, of a bicycle or of a heater or whatever it may be, did the defendant put that into the stream of commerce with the understanding that it's going to come out in that forum state. Okay. And that that's kind of a the way that the Supreme Court has looked at that, um, it's really a threshold test, that that's the first thing that you look at to decide, to decide if there are minimum contacts. Although, of course, there are... Um, there, the, so many of the opinions are plural, plurality opinions that you can, you can make arguments about it each way, but generally that's the threshold test. If the sovereignty factors are satisfied, then you look at what we call the convenience factors. And convenience factors are basically what, what, how, what kind of hardship would it be for the defendant to have to travel to the forum state. So if the lawsuit is in Connecticut and the defendant lives in New York, there's really not such of a hardship. Right. If the lawsuit is in Hawaii, however, that mm -hmm. might be more of a hardship. What kind of reasons are there for the plaintiff to want it in the forum state? Mm -hmm. So, for example, let's say the accident happened in the forum state. Maybe the piece of machinery is there. Maybe all the witnesses are there. Maybe the evidence is there. And then finally, what is the importance of having it in the forum state to the for actual forum state? So what's the importance to that state in making sure that those laws are being followed, oh. making sure that... Um, that uh, that its citizens are being protected, um, all those kinds of things. And that's really a balance of those. And, and that's, that's, those are all the factors that you look at when you're looking at the facts to try to decide whether you think that it would be constitutionally permissible or not, whether it would satisfy the minimum contact tests of international shoe. Once you've evaluated sovereignty and convenience, is there any next step that a student needs to do? Or have you, if you've gone through those two tests, have you satisfied that, the, um, that personal jurisdiction is fair? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, it's really that, that two-tiered approach. First, does it fall within the state statute? Mm -hmm. And which part of the state statute does it fall within? Mm -hmm. And if it does fall within the state statute, then does it satisfy the constitutional test? So Once right. you've done those two pieces then you have um, analyzed personal jurisdiction. The thing to remember, however, is that you can get personal jurisdiction 
in many different ways. And so um, when you're reading through fact patterns and trying to analyze it on an exam, mm -hmm. you want to make sure that you address any of the possible ways that you could arguably get personal jurisdiction. All right, so I'm a student, and now I'm in my civil procedure um, exam, and I get a fact pattern. And the fact pattern smells of personal jurisdictions. What do I do? Well, you have to read personal jurisdiction fact patterns very, very carefully. So um, first, you'll, you will have some kind of state statute um, that either will be given to you as part of the question or will be in your packet or your professor will have told you to learn or something along those lines. So you always, you, sh you should take a look at that statute so that you, you understand where the different pieces of it are. So where, what part of the statute is impacting general jurisdiction? What part of the statute is covering specific jurisdiction? What kinds of specific, what, what does the language of the statute look like? Then you have to read through the fact pattern very carefully. And as you're reading through the fact pattern, you want to identify all of the kinds of facts that will help you ascertain all the different ways that a court can get personal jurisdiction. So you would look to see, has there, any, has there been any property that's been attached? Um, has anybody been served in the forum state? What is the cause of action that's being sued on, and where did that cause of action arise? Where does the defendant live? Where does the plaintiff live? What kind of contacts does the defendant have with the forum state? Uh, if the defendant is a corporation, where is the defendant incorporated? Um, all kinds of facts like that to, to make sure, has there been consent, or is there a special appearance? Um, all of those kinds of things will help you to decide what, what direction or what kinds of personal jurisdiction you want to argue. Okay. So now you've decided what kind of jurisdiction you want to argue, right? Is that the general versus the specific, or is that the thing you have to get to the minimum context, correct? Well, you have to determine within general jurisdiction what kind, if there is one. So okay. are you arguing, is, is there consent, and can you say that there's consent? Um, was property attached? And, and if it was attached, are we talking about in-rem jurisdiction or quasi-in-rem so jurisdiction? So there's a new term for me. What's in-rem jurisdiction and what's quasi-in-rem? So, um, uh, in-rem jurisdiction is when um, you attach property in order to get personal jurisdiction, and the lawsuit is about that property itself. So the lawsuit perhaps is about the title to that property, for example. Um, and the, the, the downside of uh, in-rem or, well, so and it, that doesn't really matter because since the judgment would have to do with the actual property itself, mm -hmm. the fact that you have the property attached is going to satisfy that judgment. Okay. Quasi in rem jurisdiction is when you attach property in order to get personal jurisdiction, but the lawsuit doesn't have to do with the property itself. Okay. And the problem with that is that the if you do receive a judgment, the judgment is going to be limited to the value of the property. So if you attach property in order to get personal jurisdiction, um, 
you attach somebody's bank account, they have $50,000 in their bank account, or you attach their home, their home is worth Mm $300,000, and you get a judgment for $500,000, you're not going to be able to collect that full judgment. You're only going to be able to collect as much as um, the property is worth. So quasi-in-ram jurisdiction is not really the... It's a way to get personal jurisdiction, but if you can get in personam jurisdiction, that's much better, yeah. So you have been doing this for quite some time. What are some mistakes, common mistakes, that you see students make when writing an exam answer about impersonum jurisdiction? Is there a theme at all running through? I think that um, there are several mistakes students make. One mistake is not to address every kind of reasonable way that you can get personal jurisdiction. So you may have a fact pattern where you can make an argument that there is general jurisdiction because of systematic and continuous business activity, and also you can make an argument that there is uh, specific jurisdiction because the cause of action arose out of an isolated contact. If you can make both those arguments in a reasonable way, you, you should at least demonstrate that perhaps you can get personal jurisdiction in either of those two ways. And that's like, I'm just going to interrupt, because that's like what we see in torts too, right? If you are talking about battery... One of the biggest mistakes students make is that if they can't prove one element of battery, they just stop. So I assume kind of the reverse is true. If they can prove one type of impersonal jurisdiction, they say, right. aha, got it. Okay. Right. But, but this is an exam. This isn't a court of law. So right. you want to show that you can explore it every way. Right. Because, you know, a party is going to try. If they're trying to assert personal jurisdiction, if a, if a plaintiff, and, and by the way, the plaintiff has the burden of demonstrating personal jurisdiction over the defendant, mm-hmm. the, the plaintiff is going to try to use every possible way if the defendant argues that there's no personal jurisdiction over them. And the other thing that I think students do wrong is not to realize that it really is a, a kind of a two-tiered analysis. That first, there's the statutory state statute analysis. If, if for whatever reason, the facts do not fit within the language of the statute, then there's not going to be personal jurisdiction, and that's the end of it. Even if it fits within the language of the statute, then you have to go on and do that constitutional analysis. So um, I think that's, that's the other uh, problem, that, that people either leave out one or leave out both. And the other thing that you have to think about when you're answering a personal jurisdiction question and you have to practice beforehand is the actual organization because it's a complicated organization. It might seem repetitive because sometimes you have to do the constitutional analysis more than once, and so the facts that you may be using might sound similar, and so you might want to pick and choose which type of personal jurisdiction you want to talk about first and, and figure out how you want to organize your answer. And there's no, like, boilerplate way to organize it. It's kind of fact-dependent, right? Yes, that's correct. It's so fact-dependent. This is, this is one of the, you know, I mean, we say this with all exam questions. I think one of the biggest mistakes students make is not to really thoroughly read the exam question, either because of nerves, you want to start writing, or whatever it is. But personal jurisdiction is so dependent on the specific facts of the fact pattern that you really have to, I suggest that students read it three times. One time first, just to kind of go through and get a lay of the land and start jotting things down. 
a second time to really start thinking about and making lists on a scrap paper of the various facts that are going to support the various assertions that you're going to make, specifically with the constitutional analysis, and then a third time to see all those nuances that you might have missed that will get you all the extra points and give you an A on the exam. Yeah, and that's a good point, too, because everyone says, why didn't I get the A? And it's the nuances that make the difference between the B and the A. But those are three, like, solid points that if you just do these three things, you're guaranteed to boost. The first is to make sure that you read it you know, this is the third we talked about, to read it carefully and pick up the nuances. And then the second is to recognize that you don't stop analyzing when you hit a yes, right? Like, Correct. yes, we have it. You've right. got to keep going. Right. I forgot the third. <laughs> Anything else you think students need to know about in persona jurisdiction? I think just not to be frightened of it. I think it's something that scares a lot of people, mostly because the cases are so incredibly difficult. And that's what we spend a lot of time on in class because those we're teaching you how to how to synthesize and how to uh, read difficult cases and uh, be able to put the tests together. But if you sit with it and you figure out what the tests really are, they're not really as difficult as you think. So you shouldn't be frightened of it and and practice questions. Mm-hmm. You know that there are just so many different variations. And the more questions that you practice, the more you'll be able to recognize the issues that give rise to the various different responses. You know, I was, I was doing a podcast the other day with Lori Zimmon, and she recommended that you take one exam in a Starbucks so that you're used to distractions around you. Oh, that's, that's interesting. But that was interesting. Yeah, it's like the is... Tiger Woods theory of taking yeah. an exam. Yeah, anyway, that's an interesting... I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Anyway, um, all right, great. Well, I really appreciate you giving me the time. It's my pleasure. All right, thank you so much. It's really, actually, this has been super helpful, and um, I know that this will help students. Um, Great takeaways. Thank you very much. (laughs) Anytime. Thank you. So that's my discussion with Professor Michelle Simon. Thanks, as always, to www.bensound.com for music. Hope you enjoyed this. Have a great day.